And let's be clear, we exist only as a Great Commission people. We exist in order that sinners will hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe and be saved from all the nations. The marching orders of the Church of Jesus Christ were to go into all the world and preach the gospel because the gospel has the power unto salvation. This is what it means to follow Christ. A call to live, a call to die, a call to spend your life for Jesus here and around the world until he returns. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. I'm your host, Paul Aiken. And this season, we're moving through different eras of church history and really trying to think through what did mission look like for the church during these different eras in Christian history. Today, we're going to talk about missions in the Middle Ages. Our guest is Dr. Stephen Presley. Dr. Presley is the Senior Fellow for Religion and Public Life at the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy. He's the author of numerous books, articles, and essays, including a new forthcoming book on cultural engagement in the early church. Uh, He earned his undergraduate degree at Baylor University, a THM from Dallas Theological Seminary, and a PhD from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. In addition to his work there at the center, he also serves as an associate professor of church history at Southern Seminary, where he previously served as the director of research doctoral studies. Dr. Presley, most importantly, is a good friend of mine and just really grateful for him, his family, and his ministry, and excited to have this conversation today. Dr. Presley, welcome to the podcast. So good to be with you and feel likewise. Excited to be here. Awesome. Well, hey, as we start thinking through the Middle Ages, uh, you know, that's a that's a phrase or a category that's kind of thrown around. I would love for you to give some definition to that. When we think through the Middle Ages, what are What's the time frame? What's the the timeline that we're thinking about when we talk about the Middle Ages? Yeah, sure. You know, it, it's it's one of those things that's hard to define. And as with a, a lot of periods in history, traditionally most people ascribe it to the fall of Rome in 476, then to the fall of Constantinople in 1453 by the Turks. That's kind of your window, 476, 1453. But that's more like if you define things, let's say politically, we could define the period in a couple other ways. Let's say you could define it culturally, maybe by the Arab invasions, the way Islam kind of reshaped the culture. You could also define it, I think, theologically, a lot of people define the Middle Ages by the figure of Augustine. And Augustine's theology or Augustine's doctrine was what helped shape, particularly in the West, the church in the West. In the East, if you look at someone like John of Damascus, still well into the 8th century, you have someone that's kind of defining you know, things going on in the East. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit of a, of a, a difficulty to define the period, but nonetheless, those are some of the key dates that kind of give a framework for what we're looking at in terms of the middle ages. Okay. That's yeah, that's helpful. And I think, you know, even just kind of those dates, you kind of talked about whether that be kind of 476 all the way up into the 1400s. So we're roughly, we're looking at a period of around 800 to a thousand years, which I think to your point, describes why it can be kind of difficult to really define and kind of nail down. Now with that, there's a a notable mission historian named Kenneth Scott LaTourette, and he wrote seven volumes on the history of Christian mission. And he titles his book that's kind of focused on the Middle Ages, he titles it The 1,000 Years of Uncertainty. And he's talking about 500 (laughs) to 1,500. So 
with that said, why would a, a mission historian talk about you know, this period as the thousand years of uncertainty? Can you talk some about the, the state of the church during this time? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, as with any period, we're always struggling against and with the tension between church and state. And so, yeah, like in the West in particular, there was a bit more stability as the papacy in Rome maintains kind of a a strategic position in the West. And the political power in the West rises and falls as, you know, you have someone with political savvy or you have a king or you have someone like Charlemagne, you know, at the beginning of the ninth century, you have these figures that can bring institutional cohesion, but the church is always trying to minister. So you're working back and forth between growing or evangelizing and then trying to deal with political power. I think uh, one of my favorite uh, books on missions, Andrew Walls has a book on the history of missions, and he talks about the history of missions are defined, he uses two principles, an indigenizing principle and a pilgrim principle. The indigenizing principle is that in every period, the church is always wrestling with that cultural context. And so the the institutional church in the West is always wrestling with that political power. And how do you maintain that political power? Walls' other principle is the pilgrim principle, which we are never at home fully in this world. So you can never be too satisfied with political power. And so there's always that tension, and the the Middle Ages provide you with this challenge of the church as institution, particularly in the West. And it's not, I don't think it's all that different than some of the challenges we face when missionaries go overseas today. You you plop down in a in a country, how do you deal with the cultural context, the syncretism, the indigenization? How do you relate to the political powers? So yeah, it might be a season of uncertainty, but that doesn't mean it's not valuable to think about the way the church is relating to the culture or to the political powers that are there. Mm, yeah, that's helpful. I appreciate already kind of two things that you've mentioned, just kind of in terms of timeline. You know, as you think about, we've talked about previously in, in previous episodes about mission in the early church. And we talked about how early on the, the church in the Roman empire was largely kind of at the margins. You know, the, the Christians were not the influencers Christianity was illegal. All that changed with, you know, the conversion of Constantine. And then eventually the church starts having to wrestle with what does it look like for Christians to gain power in, in the government and to become some of the key rulers and leaders in this mixing of politics and religion. So I think you highlight that really well. And then also just the other piece that you mentioned earlier was kind of the rise of Islam. That's kind of at the beginning of this era that we're talking about today. And just the way that also changed the nature of Christian mission in the early church as well. Kind of connected with that, you know, when we talk about early church, we're thinking about some of the key geographic centers as like Jerusalem, Antioch, maybe eventually you get to Rome. As we move on into the Middle Ages, what were some of the the key geographic hubs, some of the centers for the church during this era? One of the challenges we face, particularly in the West, is so much of our history is, especially in this period, is shaped by our views of Rome and what's going on in Rome. And I know, as you well know, there is a expansion of Christianity that's going on in the East. Figures like I mentioned John of Damascus or Timothy of Baghdad, Cyril and Methodius, these individuals that are trying to evangelize the East, but they're less known than what's happening in the West. So obviously in the West, 
you have everything is hovering around the, the, the Bishop of Rome. Everything is hovering around what's going on in Rome. And that becomes sort of your locus and your in your framework for shaping that history. So so much of that history is is centered around Rome and then kind of the the, the kingdoms in Germany, France, England. Of course, you have Patrick in Ireland, Columba in Scotland, you have Spain. So you have those kind of Western European centers, but you also have missions getting out to, to the Balkans, to Russia. You have a, a few of those, those things happening as well. But it is always a tension between trying to think about the church as an institution in the West and sort of what is going on with the Bishop of Rome, and then also think about that's not the only place that the that the church is growing. Yeah, that's helpful. So kind of tied to that, can you list off maybe or just tell us some about who some of the key mission figures might have been during yeah. this time, some of the people who were really kind of pushing the gospel forward and we were seeing gospel advance take place in and through their lives and, and ministries? Yeah, I think, of course, we, we, we haven't, I know we may get to at some point the talk about monasticism, but of course, you know, some your monastic communities and so many of those who are being trained and raised and discipled in kind of monastic communities have a missionary bent to them. So a lot of your figures in this period are going to be related to mass monasticism, beginning, let's say, with even Basil of Caesarea, who receives monasticism from, I mean, early monasticism are your desert fathers in Egypt. And then you have Basil, who's who's taking it to the east, who's building hospitals and kind of that sort of missionary social effort. You have figures like Martin of Tours, who's uh, obviously in France, Patrick in Ireland, mentioned Columba, Cyril and Methodius, and several others, of course, developing from your monastic communities, your Dominicans, your Franciscans, and so on. I mean, those are some of your figures. You could list off many of the key popes as well as kind of some of the, the important figures at this time, but but those were some of your main missionaries, I think. All right. I want to dive a little bit deeper here. So you mentioned monasticism, which is a kind of a big phrase, category, term. I would love for you just to dive a little bit deeper, kind of define what are we talking about when we talk about monasticism. That's something that I think is fairly new. If our listeners have been kind of following the journey up to this point, as we talking about Jesus and the apostles, then we talk about the early church, then we get to the middle ages and this thing called monasticism really seems to kind of develop and take off. So, so what are you talking about when you talk about monasticism? Yeah, that's a great question. And on the first point, you can look at it historically. When did monasticism develop? It really takes off around the time of, uh, you know, the institutionalization of the church with Constantine. I mean, in in the early church, martyrdom is kind of that extreme form of spirituality. I demonstrate my faithfulness. Well, what happens when the church is in political power? Suddenly, your political figures are Christian and they're tempted by all the trappings that come with political power. And so, you know, a monastic, if you look at Antony as the father of, of monasticism, he went into the Egyptian desert in part to kind of because of a cultural Christianity and the frustrations. And so monasticism has some of those, some good visions of commitment to the spiritual life and devotion to Christ as a, as an ultimate form. And so monasticism develops, let's say, in the fourth century, and then several communities give rise at certain points, almost always out of this desire for a committed Christian life. 
Mm. And of course, your monastic communities are building hospitals. I mentioned Basel, they're building schools. Scholasticism is born from, you know, monastic communities. And they also go to these extreme places, in part modeling Christ. Christ went to the desert to be tempted. And so I can appreciate this zeal to go to the ends of the earth and live out my spiritual life and evangelize and disciple along mm-hmm. the way, even if there are some, you know, some issues with specific monasticism, monastic communities, and, and, and so forth. Yeah, that's, that's really good. That's really helpful. The Great Commission is a call to go. And a call to go is a call to prepare. Whether you're called to advance the gospel in your local church or on mission fields around the world, Southern Seminary is committed to preparing you for a lifetime of faithful ministry. Designed with flexibility and personalization in mind, the Master of Divinity in Great Commission Studies allows pastors, missionaries, and ministry leaders to prepare for their own unique call to ministry. It's designed to equip students with the biblical foundation and the practical training needed to present the gospel clearly in cross-cultural missional settings. To learn more about the Master of Divinity in Great Commission Studies, go to sbts.edu slash bgs or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click the link to the Billy Graham School of Southern Seminary. There, you'll learn how listeners to this podcast can save $40 when applying for classes. That web address again is sbts.edu slash bgs. I want to kind of transition to some specific monastic orders. So kind of as it takes shape, you know, one of the things I appreciate was kind of the way you reference the martyrs. And so you think kind of pre-Constantine, people who were really truly committed to Christ, Many of those were those who were martyred for the faith. And so we think about people like Polycarp or Justin Martyr, you kind of go down the line. As the church moves into power post-Constantine, then in many ways, we can say that the the monks, the monastics, they kind of replace the martyrs as those who are exemplary followers of Jesus and who model what it means to follow Christ. And that takes on even further shape until you get into some of these monastic orders that then come into existence. So particularly, I want to start with the Dominicans and the Franciscans. And one of the questions I often have in in my class when we talk through the history of mission is, who were the Dominicans and the Franciscans? That's kind of the first part of the question. So who were these these folks? And then how faithful were they to to the Christian gospel? And, And how do we need to think about their missionary efforts? Yeah, that's a great question. I've talked about some of the strengths. I should point out some interesting sort of applicational things are anytime the church is losing political power, there is kind of a monastic impetus in us. So think about in the emerging church movement, there was the rise of new monasticism or Rod Dreher's Benedict Option. There's something implicit in Christianity where when we're struggling with political power, there's those things that kind of gosh, we want to protect the spaces in which Christianity can flourish. Mm. And so some of that is is that monastic motivation. Now, I think what was going on in the emerging church and even some of the the struggles with, let's say, the Benedict Option is sometimes those movements happen parachurch. They're not movements that are located in trying to maintain. So many of your monastic communities were priests and were functioning but many of them also were sort of isolated, not part of the full body of a worshiping community. So there's that tension with monasticism of, I want a retreat that has some healthy things in it, but am I fully part of the church or the worshiping community through regular acts of worships with the full body? I think 
that's some of the challenge I have with monasticism. And, you know, sometimes I feel like Martin Luther, as, as Martin Luther is, you know, a good Augustinian monk, he tries to do all the things that he can do, and he he discovers a doctrine of justification. And so sometimes the monastic life is focused on that life and not a good, clear doctrine of justification that I think is so healthy. Mm, that's good. Can you talk some about maybe Dominic de Guzman or or even St. Francis and some of these figures and kind of what they were trying to do maybe as they were leading these particular monastic groups? These are great questions. And, and why? Let ask, why did each of these monastic orders develop? Well, both your Dominicans and your Franciscans are considered mendicant orders. That is, they're focused on poverty. And they're immediately rejecting the trappings of political power and the wealth of the church. And they're realizing, and it's something, it's a lesson for us. How much does wealth and does privilege affect, you know, the our, our thoughts about authentic Christian ministry and, and affect our, our thoughts about cultural engagement and all those kinds of mm-hmm. things. So, yeah, so they, they took vows of poverty. What was helpful about the Dominicans and Franciscans and they, is they stress preaching. So they were often found uh, preaching to a, a popular audience or preaching to communities. They were also focused on theological education, theological training. Because in their minds, so much of the church and so much of the clergy were not always theologically trained, were not always committed to the needs of the people, were not always devoted to the community of faith. And so those those are some of the things that make those mendicant orders, I think, so helpful and so important. Yeah, that's good. You know, early on, you kind of framed the conversation around how does the church exist in a context where Christianity is is the religious power when you have a state and a church that are intimately intertwined yeah. one of the results that comes out of that as we think about this time period is the reality of the crusades uh, now the crusades are, are something that we have maybe some of us have heard about maybe we, some of us have read about maybe we've seen a movie that kind of talks about the crusades in history can you talk some about the impact of the crusades during this era as we think about christian mission it's difficult to talk about the Crusades because even today, you know, it's it's if you meet, I'm sure you have met those who who minister among Islamic communities, they they still bring it up. I mean, it's still discussed. It's a very difficult issue. I think with with the Crusades and really at a lot of points in, in history, we go back to that Augustine question of just war. Like what, what does it mean for a political power? to carry out acts of war. And, and that's some of the question that we're wrestling. I, I don't always think the Crusades were justified, mm-hmm. but they were wrestling with that question of what does uh, what does a just war look like? What is a, a, a legitimate authority? You know, is there the right intention? Is the cause itself just these kinds of these kinds of questions? And the Crusades, I don't think we can completely, in every way, reject some of the piety and the devotion. But clearly, I think having a healthier understanding of the relationship between church and state and developing a good just war theory that applies to the state, not necessarily the church. And I think that became confused within a medieval period as your as your bishop of Rome gained more authority and more power. So 
all this to say, you know, you condemn the the use of war and the use of military doesn't always get you away from the challenging questions of the relationship of church and state and the function of a state in terms of a Romans 13 and the role of the state to protect its borders, to, to do all those kinds of things. And that's the problem in the medieval period is all of those things are jumbled in ways that once you get in a post-Reformation world, that tension between church and state gets a little bit more clarified or solidified with mm-hmm. a variety of, of traditions. That's really good. And, and I think it's also helpful for our listeners to kind of understand when we talk about the Crusades. I think sometimes we think about a crusade maybe being a one or two, three, five-year kind of thing. The reality is the Crusades, there were a variety of waves of Crusades that lasted for almost 200 years. So you think like, I think the, the, the dates are around 1095 to 1291, something along those lines. There were wave after wave after wave of Crusades. And like you mentioned, I think there were some people in there who were who had pure and, and genuine motives in many ways. And yet at the same time, there's a lot of complexity as we think about the Crusades. And to your point earlier, having lived and served in Muslim contexts, you know, there's in the world today estimates around 1.8 billion Muslims in the world today. So, you know, practically that's one out of every four or five people on the planet would claim to be a follower of Islam. And I can remember being in in taxi cabs in the Middle East and having my taxi driver ask me, why is it that, that you Americans and you Westerners are always on a crusade in our land? And for them, even though we're talking, you know, 800 years ago, for them, this is still very fresh, very real, almost seems like it was yesterday. And you can understand that just some of the complexity, the baggage that brings to Christian mission, because even fast forward, we're not going to talk about this era today, but you fast forward from the crusades to colonization. And eventually it's like, wait a minute, this feels like kind of the Crusades repackaged in a sense. And so you have colonization that came and you have Muslim peoples always kind of looking at Western Christianity with a lens of confusion and saying, wait a minute, aren't you the people who come to, to fight us, to, to subjugate us, to rule us and these kinds of things. And so there is complexity uh, that still exists even to this day, as we think about an event like the Crusades. So hard to talk about this, this era of Christian mission without mentioning the Crusades in some capacity. Yeah, definitely. All right. Uh, I want to just kind of, before we switch to kind of a rapid fire with just some quick hitting questions, can you just kind of talk through, just maybe summarize for us some of the, some of the unique challenges for Christian mission during this era? Obviously there's, there's a lot that's going on. We've talked about kind of monastic orders. We've talked about the Crusades. We've talked about church and state. What were some of the challenges for the spread of the gospel during this time? Yeah, I think you can talk about it in terms of, if I take the West and the East, just generally, the West, you have the challenge of institutionalization. And this is something that doesn't ever go away. It is once the church gains cultural and political power, missions and evangelism has, and and cultural engagement has a certain sort of aspect to it that becomes difficult. You know, growing up, uh, you know, we'd I always hear about a cultural Christianity and the challenge of a cultural Christianity in which someone would would appear Christian on the outside, but not genuinely Christian in their convictions. And so I think in the West, you're always dealing with that that institution and the furthering of the institution, like the Crusades and the the expansion of the institution, all of those things you're dealing with those issues in the West. In the East, it's, it's a little bit more organic and a little bit more scattered. And in the East, you have 
a different set of issues that are akin to many of our, our four missionaries that go overseas, because in the East, you're dealing with Islam, Timothy of Baghdad, John of Damascus, these individuals. And, and you know, you're dealing with your Slavic countries, you're dealing with those countries in the East, and there's a little bit more of indigenizing challenges in the East mm-hmm. of that danger of syncretism, of trying to present the gospel in ways that are not always, always that are, that are clear and utilize the culture in helpful ways. And so I think this can be an exciting time to study as you look at some of that tension going on in, in, in the West and the East. Yeah, that's good. I want to switch to some kind of rapid fire questions here and let you just kind of fill in the blanks for us a little bit. So some of your favorite books on this era would be what? Yeah. Ed Smither has a book on missionary monks. That's a nice, he has several books on kind of missions. It's just, just a nice synopsis of some of the key missionary figures at this period. So I think that would be those who have asked, that is kind of my first go here because he gives you a nice summary, each chapter of a different figure and their relationship to missions. I think Philip Jenkins' Lost History of Christianity is good for the East. And he just, he walks you through, I think he begins with Timothy of Baghdad and then he walks you through a lot of things that are happening in the East that we often don't hear about because we're we're dealing so much with a Western context. I think for a history book, Lynch is a, a brief history of the medieval church is a good kind of just nuts and bolts summary of the events. I think those would be my main. There's other books on doctrine, theology, some of those things, yeah. but in terms of missions, that's what I'd recommend. That's great. Fill, fill in the blank here. The best thing about the monastic orders was blank. Number one, a disciplined life. The importance of ordering. I I just finished reading Atomic Habits, and Atomic Habits is basically taking a monastic life and applying it to your. I mean, it is the monastic orders. Now that can be taken to an extreme, but but emphasize a disciplined life. The monastic orders remind us that sanctification matters, mm. that coming to faith in Christ, you don't need to, to just you know enjoy a cultural Christianity, that there's this need to focus daily on your, on your spiritual life in an organized way. And I think also theological education, your Dominicans, your Franciscans, scholasticism. I think these are some of the best things that those medieval monastic orders guide us and help us. Yeah. Kind of flipping the question around another fill in the blank. The most concerning things about the monastic orders was blank. I think one is a clear doctrine justification. I think this is, and and this takes us to the Reformation. Mm. And so having clarity about justification, I think is, is essential. And number two, I think I, I said earlier that this kind of parachurch impetus that you know my my vision of missions is focused on the church creating church committed to the church that the monastic communities kind of have this sort of parachurch they're not always parachurch many of many of them involved intimately within the local church but there's always that that kind of tension between being part of the church itself and in addition yeah so i, I think i would say some of those things are the concerning things. That's good. Last question. One to two things from this era 
that that we as the church today, 2023, could could really benefit from? I mean, if you look at the medieval period, we've already talked about this a little bit. It's your monastic communities, your monastic orders that are going to the ends of the earth. They take seriously that that call to go to the ends of the earth. And they're often going to the most difficult places. They're going to the most challenging places and and setting up communities in some of the the most difficult and the most uh, challenging places. And something, again, I think that's helpful that maybe some of our missionaries sometimes struggle with is this this daily life sanctification kind of that, that that tension between like to go back to Andrew Walls setting up a community that's indigenized that thinks about the totality of their lives i think that's something even if i don't always agree with the institutions that they're establishing that mm-hmm. kind of motivation to think about the whole life is 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 helpful that's good dr presley thank you so much for your time and for the conversation today it is so good to be with you. Good to see you, my friend. Yeah. To hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to this podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Thank you for joining us on Amazon to the Himalayas. This podcast is brought to you by the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. Please visit our website, www.sbts.edu bgs, where you can subscribe to the show and learn more. Also, if you have found these conversations helpful, please leave us a comment or a review and encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.